Hello there, and welcome to Grim Reading, where each episode we read and review a Brothers Grimm tale. My name is Matthew Hughes, and with me on this journey is my co-host, Mr. Adam Field. This week on Grim Reading. The Fisherman and his wife. So make yourself comfortable and prepare for a Grim Reading. There was once upon a time a fisherman who lived with his wife in a miserable pigsty close by the sea, and every day he went out fishing. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Strong opener. And once, as he was sitting with his rod, looking at the clear water, his line suddenly went down, far down below, and when he drew it up again, he brought out a large flounder. Then the flounder said to him, Listen, you fisherman, I pray you, let me live. I am no flounder, really, but an enchanted prince. (laughs) What good will it do you to kill me? I should not be good to eat. Put me in the water again and let me go. Come, said the fisherman. There's no need for so many words about it. A fish that can talk I should certainly let go anyhow. With that, he put him back again into the clear water, and the flounder went to the bottom, leaving a long streak of blood behind him. Then the fisherman got up and went home to his wife in the pigsty. Husband, said the woman, have you caught nothing today? No, said the man. I did catch a flounder who said he was an enchanted prince, so I let him go again. Did you not wish for anything first? said the woman. (laughs) No. You all know you. Everyone knows you catch a haunted fish prince thing. You get three wishes, right? At least try. (laughs) Yeah, come on. (laughs) No, said the man. (laughs) What should I wish for? Ah, said the woman. It is surely hard to have to live always in this dirty pigsty. You might have wished for a small cottage for us. Go back and call him. Tell him we want to have a small cottage. He will certainly give us that. Ah, said the man. Why should I go there again? Why, said the woman. You did catch him, and you let him go again. He is sure to do it. Go at once. The man still did not quite like to go, but he did not like to oppose his wife and went to the sea. When he got there, the sea was all green and yellow and no longer so smooth. So he stood still and said, Flounder, flounder in the sea, come I pray you hear to me. For my wife good Isabel wills not as I'd have a will. (laughs) Okay, so he's gone back to the sea. Yeah. The sea is green and yellow. Yes, it is. I, no, I'm not sure about that. And no longer so smooth. No longer so smooth. So all he's got to do is rap at the sea. Yes. Yo, 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 flounder, flounder <laughs> in the sea. What? And then he's hoping that... <laughs> well, I did the trick because then the flounder came swimming to him. Oh, and lovely. And said, well, what does she want then? Ah, uh, said the man. I did catch you, and my wife says I really ought to wish for something. She does not like to live in a wretched pigsty any longer. She would like to have a cottage. Go then, said the flounder. She has it already. Oh, wow. When the man went home, his wife was no longer in the pigsty, but instead of it, there stood a small cottage, and she was sitting on a bench before the door. Then she took him by the hand and said to him, Just come inside. Look, now isn't that a great deal better? So they went in, and there was a small porch, and a pretty little parlour and bedroom, and a kitchen and pantry with the best of furniture, and fitted up with the most beautiful things made of tin and brass, whatever was wanted. 
and behind the cottage there was a small yard with hens and ducks and a little garden with flowers and fruit. Look, oh. said the wife, is that not nice? Yes, said the husband, and so we must always think it. Now we will live quite contented. We will think about that, said the wife. And with that they ate something and went to bed. Hmm. <laughs> I like, no, it's great. It's got a pantry with nice furniture in it. Oh, it's a lovely little cottage, yeah. Yeah, tin and brass. Tin and brass all over the shop. Lovely. What more could you, what, what more could you want? You're going to be happy for life now. So if they start wanting other things, I'm going to get mad. Well, everything went well for a week or a fortnight. And then the woman said, Listen, husband, this cottage is far too small for us. And the garden and yard are little. The flounder might just as well have given us a larger house. I should like to live in a great stone castle. Go to the flounder and tell him to give us a castle. Whoa, there's something between tiny cottage and castle. <laughs> oh, wife, said the man. The cottage is quite good enough. Why should we live in a castle? What? said the woman. Just go there. The flounder can always do that. <laughs> no, wife, said the man. The flounder has just given us the cottage. I do not like to go back so soon. It might make him angry. Yeah, go, said the woman. He can do it quite easily and will be glad to do it. Just go to him. The man's heart grew heavy and he did not want to go. He said to himself, it's not right. And yet he went. Oh dear. And when he came to the sea, the water was quite purple and dark blue. Oh, it's always oh, it's, oh, it's changing colour. And grey and thick and no longer so green and yellow. But it was quite still. It's... Whoa! Okay, still... <laughs> so much detail. And thick, but grey and purple. I That's cannot it. picture that. <laughs> and he stood there and said... Flounder, flounder in the sea, come, I pray you hear to me. For my wife, Isabel, will's not as I'd have a will. Well, what does she want then? said the flounder. Alas, said the man, half scared, she wants to live in a great stone castle. Go to it then, she is standing before the door. Blah, 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 said the flounder. He's done it again, he's done it again. He's only done it again, Adam. <laughs> this flounder. The magic flounder. Then the man went away, intending to go home. But when he got there, he found a great stone palace, and his wife was just standing on the steps going in, and she took him by the hand and said, Come in. So he went in with her, and in the castle was a great hall, paved with marble, and many servants who flung the doors wide, and the walls were all bright with beautiful hangings, and in the rooms were chairs and tables of pure gold, Whoa. and crystal chandeliers hung from the ceiling, and all the rooms and bedrooms had carpets. <laughs> oh no, where the oh, yeah. I'm not making it up. No way. And food and wine of the very best was standing on all the tables so that they nearly broke down beneath it. <laughs> That's too That's much food. That's not good. That's not good. Behind the house too, there was a great courtyard with stables for horses and cows and the very best of carriages. There was a magnificent large garden too with the most beautiful flowers and fruit trees and a park half a mile long in which were stags, <laughs> deer and hares and everything that could be desired. Come, said the woman. Isn't that beautiful? It most certainly is. If you're not happy with that, you've got issues, mate. I you've got yeah. carpets and everything. Carpets. Carpets and wall hangings and crystal chandeliers. I mean, Amazing. What, what more do you need? That is beautiful. Technically a palace, not a castle. So, yeah, maybe she's got a point. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the fisherman 
agrees with our sentiment there, Adam. Yes, indeed, said the man. Now let it be, and we will live in this beautiful castle and be content. Yes. We will consider about that, said the woman, and sleep upon it. Then they went to bed. Next morning, the wife awoke first, and it was just daybreak, and from her bed, she saw the beautiful country lying before her. Her husband was still stretching himself, so she poked him in the side with her elbow and said, Get up, husband, and just peep out of the window. Look, you, couldn't we be the king over all that land? Go to the flounder. We will be king. Oh, wife, said the man, why should we be king? I do not want to be king. Well, said the wife, if you won't be king, I will. Go to the flounder, <laughs> for I will be king. She's going to be king. Oh, wife, said the man, why do you want to be king? I do not want to say that to him. Why not, said the woman. Go to him this instant. I must be king. She just keeps wanting more and more. She's power hungry. Power mad. But he's got to go. So the man went and was quite unhappy because his wife wished to be king. It's not right. It's not right, thought he. (laughs) He did not wish to go, but yet he went. And when he came to the sea, it was quite dark grey and the water heaved up from below and smelt putrid. Then he went and stood by it and said... Flounder, flounder in the sea Come, I pray you hear to me For my wife, good Isabel Wills not as I'd have a will Well, what does she want then? Said the flounder Alas, she wants to be king Go to her She is king already (laughs) Sorry, I love this flounder I know I don't Yeah, okay, there's a lot A lot of questions Yeah, I'll save him I'll save him (laughs) So the man went And when he came to the palace The castle had become much larger And had a (laughs) And had a great tower And magnificent ornaments And the sentinel was standing before the door And there were numbers of soldiers With kettle drums and trumpets And when he went inside (laughs) And when he was making a racket (laughs) 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 Will you shut up (laughs) (laughs) And when he went inside the house, everything was of real marble and gold, with velvet covers and great golden tassels. (laughs) Then the doors of the hall were opened, and there was the court in all its splendor. And his wife was sitting on a high throne of gold and diamonds, and with a great crown of gold on her head, and a scepter of pure gold and jewels in her hand. And on both sides of her stood her maids-in-waiting in a row, each of them always one head shorter than the last. (laughs) Why is that good? So much detail. Stackable maids. (laughs) Stackable maids, like Russian dolls. Yeah. Then the fisherman went and stood before her and said, Oh, wife, and now you are king. Yes, said the woman. Now I am king. (laughs) (laughs) So he stood and looked at her. And when he had looked at her thus for some time, he said, And now that you're king, let all else be. Now we will wish for nothing more. Nay, husband, said the woman quite anxiously. I find time passes very heavily. I can bear it no longer. Go to the flounder. I am king, but I must be emperor too. Oh, for goodness sake. Alas, wife, why do you wish to be emperor? (laughs) (laughs) This this has gone on long enough. (laughs) Husband, said she, go to the flounder. I will be emperor. Alas, wife said the man. He cannot make you emperor. I may not say that to the fish. There is only one emperor in the land. An emperor the flounder cannot make you. I assure you he cannot. 
What? said the woman. I am the king, and you are nothing but my husband. Will you go this moment? Go at once! If he can make a king, he can make an emperor. I will be emperor. Go instantly! So he was forced to go. Well, I mean, his king demands it. As the man went, however, he was troubled in mind, and thought to himself, it will not end well. It will not end well. Emperor is too shameless. The flounder will at last be tired out. With that, he reached the sea, and the sea was quite black and thick, and began to boil up from below, so that it threw up bubbles, and such a sharp wind blew over it that it curdled, and the man was afraid. The sea has curdled? The sea has curdled, Adam, that's what's happening here. I know, it's awful, isn't it? Who left the hob on? Idiots. Then he went and stood by it and said, Flounder, flounder in the sea, come I pray you here to me, for my wife good Isabel, Will's not as I'd have a will. Well, what does she want then? said the flounder. Alas, flounder, said he, my wife wants to be emperor. Go to her, said the flounder. She is emperor already. Blah, blah, blah. He's got a lot of power, this flounder. He's pulling some strings. <laughs> I think that's going to be my favourite quote of the episode. He's <laughs> got a lot of power, this flounder. <laughs> So the man went, and when he got there, the whole palace was made of polished marble, with alabaster figures and golden ornaments, and soldiers were marching before the doors, blowing trumpets and beating cymbals and drums. It's just yeah, an that's absolute racket. <laughs> <laughs> and in the house, barons and counts and dukes were going about as servants, because she's so high she's up. She's that now. high up, yeah. Then they opened the doors to him, which were made of pure gold. Of course. Get ready for some splendor now, Adam. (laughs) You've you've not seen splendor like this. Shagpile. And when he entered, there sat his wife on a throne, which was made of one piece of gold and was at least two miles high. What? (laughs) Hello? (laughs) It's quite high. And she wore a great golden crown that was three yards high and set with diamonds and carbuncles. And in one hand, she had the scepter and with the other, the imperial orb. And on both sides of her stood the yeoman of the guard in two rows, each being smaller than the one before him, from the biggest giant who was two miles high to the very smallest dwarf, just as big as my little finger. Wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, and uh, before it stood a number of princes and dukes. Well, I mean... She's important, Adam. She's really important. I hope that's clear. Two miles high (laughs) with a three-yard crown. (laughs) She looks ridiculous. How did she get up there? Helicopter. How do you get into a two-mile-high chair? (laughs) Helicopter. You've answered your own question. I think that's how, right? Yeah, that's the only way. So the husband's there in the court. <laughs> if he can see his wife, it's this chair just poking out the top of the castle. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you can't see it at all. Yeah, it's in the clouds. It's really awful. <laughs> then the man went and stood among them and said, Wife, are you emperor now? Yes, said she. Now I'm emperor. Then he stood and looked at her well. And when he had looked at her for some time, he said, Oh, wife, be content now that you're emperor. Husband, said she, why are you standing there? Now I'm emperor, but I will be pope too. Go to the flounder. (laughs) Oh, right. I was trying to think what's above emperor. Pope, of course, it's pope. 
Alas, wife, said the man, what will you not wish for? You cannot be Pope. There is but one in Christendom. He cannot make you Pope. Husband, said she, <laughs> I will be Pope. Go immediately. I must be Pope this very day. No, wife, said the man. I do not want to say that to him. That would not do. It's too much. The flounder can't make you Pope. Husband, what nonsense. If he can make an emperor, he can make a Pope. Go to him directly. I am emperor, and you are nothing but my husband. Will you go at once? Then he was afraid and went. But he was quite faint, and shivered and shook, and his knees and legs trembled, and a high wind blew over the land, and the clouds flew, and towards evening all grew dark, and the leaves fell from the trees. And the water rose and roared as if it were boiling, and splashed upon the shore. And in the distance he saw ships which were firing guns in distress, pitching and tossing on the waves. And yet in the midst of the sky there was still a small bit of blue, though on every side it was as red as in a heavy storm. So, full of despair, he went and stood in much fear and said, Flounder, flounder in the sea, come, I pray you, here to me. For my wife, good Isabel, wills not as I'd have a will. What does she want then? said the flounder. Alas, said the man, she, uh, wants to be Pope. Go to her then, said the flounder. She is Pope already. So he went, and when he got there, he saw what seemed to be a large church surrounded by palaces. He pushed his way through the crowd. Inside, however, everything was lighted up with thousands and thousands of candles. And his wife was clad in gold, and she was sitting on a much higher throne, and had three great golden crowns on. And round <laughs> Does that even work? And round about her, there was much ecclesiastical splendour. <laughs> oh, I like my splendour to be ecclesiastical. And on, the very best kind of splendour. And, and on both sides of her was a row of candles, the largest of which was as tall as the very tallest tower, down to the very smallest kitchen candle. And all the emperors and kings were on their knees before her, kissing her shoe. What? Okay. I've got, okay, I've got specific questions about that, but we'll come back to that. No, you're, well, you're welcome to, to shoot now. Okay. <laughs> she's, right. in, she's in a chair. Well, sorry, yeah. throne. That's yeah. much taller than two miles. Yeah. And they're kissing her feet. <laughs> I How? Think, no, they're kissing her shoes. So I think before she got in the oh, helicopter, she, she took her, her shoes, shoes off. off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're just kissing the shoes because they can't get to the feet. Yeah, fair So it enough. makes perfect sense. Actually. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's just watertight. You're absolutely mm. right. Wife, said the man, and looked attentively at her. Are you Pope now? <laughs> what a question <laughs> Wife Are you Pope now Yes said she I am Pope So he stood and looked at her And it was just as if he were looking at the bright sun And when he stood looking at her Thus for a short time He said Ah oh, wife if you're Pope Do let well enough alone But she looked stiff as a post And did not move or show any signs of life Then said he Wife, now that your Pope be satisfied, you cannot become anything greater now. I will consider about that, said the woman. Oh, dear, what's above Pope? <laughs> At this, they both went to bed. But she was not satisfied, and greediness let her have no sleep, for she was continually thinking what there was left for her to be. The man slept well and soundly, for he had run about a great deal during the day, but the woman could not fall asleep at all and flung herself from one side to the other the whole night through, 
thinking always what more was left for her to be, but unable to call to mind anything else. <laughs> Above Pope Yen, <laughs> absolutely right. At length, the sun began to rise, and when the woman saw the red of dawn, she sat up in bed and looked at it. And when through the window she saw the sun thus rising, she said, Cannot I too order the sun and moon to rise? Husband, said she, poking him in the ribs with her elbow, wake up, go to the flounder, for I wish to be like God is. Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear, come on I now. I thought that's where come I was going, now. come on, you've taken it too far. <laughs> It's fine. It's finally gone too far. Final straw. Yeah, come on. We've all had a laugh, but this is... We've all, we've all had a bit of fun, but this is too much now. The man was still half asleep, but he was so horrified that he fell out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me the bed's like three miles high. He's like, oh. no! <laughs> Get the helicopter, quick. <laughs> He thought he must have heard wrong and rubbed his eyes and said, Alas, wife, what are you saying? Husband, said she, if I cannot order the sun and moon to rise and have to look on and see the sun and moon rising, I can't bear it. I shall not know what it is to have another happy hour unless I can make them rise myself. Then she looked at him so terribly that a shudder ran over him and said, Go at once, I wish to be like God. Alas, wife, said the man, falling on his knees before her, the flounder cannot do that. He can make you emperor and a pope. I beseech you, go on as you are and be pope. Then she fell into a rage and her hair flew wildly about her head and she cried, I will not endure this. I'll not bear it any longer. Will you go? Then he put on his trousers and ran away like a madman. <laughs> no, that doesn't actually say that. It says that. He put he on his put trousers. on his trousers and ran away. Look, that is one of the best lines we've ever heard. Yes. He put on his trousers and ran away like a madman. The absolute madman. I totally agree. That's fantastic. Then he put on his trousers and ran away like a madman. <laughs> that is an incredible sentence. That's amazing. I could picture it. That's up there with the devil with the three golden hairs. The the devil wasn't home, but his grandma was in a rocking chair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so oh. he's put on his trousers and he's off. He's off like a madman. But outside, a great storm was raging and blowing so hard that he could scarcely keep his feet. Houses and trees toppled over. The mountains trembled. Rocks rolled into the sea. The sky was pitch black and it thundered and lightened. And the sea came in with black waves as high as church towers and mountains and all with crests of white foam at the top. Then he cried, but he could not hear his own words. Adam, I need some wind and lightning sound effects, please. Flounder, flounder, in the sea. Come, I pray you here to me, for my wife could Isabel. Will's not as I'd have her will. Well, what does she want then? Said the flounder. Alas, said he, she wants to be like God. Go to her, and you will find her back again in the dirty pigsty. And there, and there they are living still at this very time. The end.
<laughs> He's in shock. Never has such a Have long ever. story mm. ended so suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Just wow. Done. Completely done. Yeah. Mad. Madness. Okay. I don't remember for ages having like finishing a story and feeling like I've got this much to unpack. This just it's, it's a dense one. It's so dense. It's epic. It's huge. I didn't warn you about the length, but that was a really long story as well. I mean, they don't get much more epic than that. They really don't. Totally agree. And that's music to my ears. That was huge. It was it's massive. That was an absolutely massive tale. <laughs> wow. Okay. Dumbstruck. I am dumbstruck. We, we haven't had something like that for a long time, I'd say. No, no, we really haven't. Can I try and sort of piece it together then? Sure. So there's a fisherman and his wife live in a pigsty. Miserable pigsty. Yes. I'm thinking probably not li- literally a pigsty, but just no, metaphorically well, a pigsty. Well, in the original German, it's called Pissput, which translates as piss pot. So this is a clean version, Adam. They live in a <laughs> piss pot. Excuse my French. <laughs> yes. Excuse your German. Excuse my German French English. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, that paints a lovely picture. He happens to catch a flounder, which is an enchanted prince, obviously. Naturally. And the flounder's like, Oh, yeah, my prince, drop <laughs> me off back in the water, please. And he's like, Ah, oh, fair enough. Uh, you didn't, uh, I think you're overselling it a bit. The fact you're talking at all, I'm going to put you back. Chill out, chill out. So he pops him back. He's a decent guy. He's got, uh, yeah, he's got no beef guy. with him. Yeah. Um, He's got fish. No, I was no, to make a fish I joke. Thinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I let it go. <laughs> yeah, just like he did with the flounder. Um, <laughs> oh God! Um, wow, well done, rescued, rescued. <laughs> so then his wife, slightly power hungry. Well, I guess not at this stage. She just she wants more, and you can understand they live in a pigsty. She wants more. So. Yeah, yeah. You've got to go back because obviously everyone knows <laughs> enchanted fish princes can grant you wishes. Oh, everyone knows this. Everyone, everyone knows this. Common knowledge. Yeah, come on. So he goes back. Can we have a little cottage, please? Bearing in mind that's what his wife asked for. Mm-hmm. Can we have a little cottage? You already got it, mate. Goes back. Already got it. <laughs> Say no Brilliant. more. Say no yeah. more, fella. Already so they done. got what they asked for. They got what they asked for, but she's not happy. She's got a little taste for the uh, real estate market and she wants something bigger. Yeah. So she gets... Progressively, she gets a castle, and she's king. King of the castle. King of the castle. But she's not happy being king. She's got to be emperor. So she gets a bigger castle. Yes. And a two-mile-high throne chair. Chair. Yeah, brilliant. (laughs) Then she's not happy with emperor. So what's above emperor? Pope, of course. So she's pope. She becomes pope, yeah. And then she is like, oh, I've got to get beyond pope. What's above pope? Well, God, I guess. And she's stressed out that she can't control the sun and the moon and the tides. Yeah, she can't make the sun rise or something, yeah. So he goes back to ask for this, and the fish prince flounder thing is like, uh, she's back in the pigsty, mate. See you later. And then that's it. That's the end of the story. Meanwhile, with each request, something weird is happening with the sea. Yes. It's like... It's like it's collecting evil from this woman's greed or something. I don't know what's going on with that sea. But it's not just... (laughs) It's changing. It's a little rainbow-coloured, multicoloured <laughs> yeah. technicy. But it's yeah. um, it's not just the sea as well. It starts to be, I think by the end, the like houses are falling down because there's high yeah. wind. The sky, there's only, at one point, there's only a small patch of blue 
because it's yeah. all just like yeah. a storm. It's like everything is falling apart. Yeah, it's like if the upside, like the portal to the upside down, is opened up in Stranger Things. It's like that, isn't it? Sort of everything starts crumbling. Never apart. seen Stranger Things. You've never seen Stranger Things? <laughs> no. <laughs> Why haven't you seen Stranger Things? Well, for many reasons, but this isn't the forum to discuss the reasons I haven't seen Stranger Things yet. I know it's a crime. I know it's a crime. It's an absolute crime. But it's a travesty. <laughs> we'll deal with that off air. Yeah, we're dealing with this crime for now. Yeah. This <laughs> is The fisherman's <laughs> wife. <laughs> so I love the greed. The just open, naked greed that she's got. Yeah, absolutely. She's, she's mm-hmm. insane, basically. She just wants more and more and more. That was my expert characterization that made her insane, I think. <laughs> there was. You really brought her to life. I will be Pope. <laughs> you can just see the sort of vacant look in her eyes. She just... No, that was me. You were looking at me. Yeah, yeah. I can see the vacant look in your eyes. but <laughs> Just like every time. <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's a yeah, strange yeah. one, isn't it? Why? So mm. she's king, first of all, not queen, which is strange. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. And then emperor, I suppose, did they used to refer to empresses? Or is that just a horrible, needless genderization? Uh, I don't know. Well, there's not been a female pope. Well, interesting you brought that up, Adam. (laughs) Oh, have I touched on something there? Something that we will be exploring shortly. I'm going to keep that tucked away for now. You're tucking away the female pope? I'm tucking away the popess. We'll be back. We'll be back to that later. Oh wow! I didn't yeah, expect. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> but for now, yeah. I mean, one thing that you you know you may have spotted out of several things is that it perhaps doesn't follow the same trajectory as a normal fairy tale. And I've seen this described as an anti fairy tale. Right. They end up with their riches being taken away from them at the end rather than being rewarded with the riches. So normally we see something happens in the home, someone leaves home, goes on an adventure, becomes king or queen, and lives in a castle and is rich and happily ever after, right? Yeah. That's not what happens here, it's the opposite. Yeah, they get to the top and they go back to the bottom again. It's kind of like a reverse... um, What's the one with the woman who goes off with the... Is it Thrushbeard? Oh, a reverse Thrushbeard, oh my god. She's a highfalutin princess. Yeah, it's kind of the same as Thrushbeard, I guess. No, it's reverse. She starts at the top, she goes down to the bottom, and then ends up going back to the top, whereas they start at the bottom, go all the way to the top, and then go back down again. Yeah, you're so right. It's an anti-Thrushbeard. Yeah. Another sentence I didn't think I'd (laughs) say today. Anti-Thrushbeard, ask your pharmacist. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, the term anti-Marken or anti-fairy tale, was uh, mm-hmm. used in this way, was first coined by a chap called Andre Jollies, or something, in 1929. Uh, however, the term anti-fairy tale is also applied to modern reinterpretations of fairy tales, which sort of subvert or satirize them. So okay. you've kind of got two definitions of an anti-fairy tale. One is like where it's the opposite trajectory of a normal story, and another is where yeah. it's like... Sleeping Beauty punched the prince in the face or something when he tried to kiss her, you know, like a sort yeah, of modern yeah. subversion. Okay. But in terms of it being an anti-fairy tale, right? So if we can call this an anti-fairy tale, I thought the journey that they go on in this story is sort of like two, you've got two parallel lines on a graph. 
One is of exponential material advantage and improved status. But on the other hand, you've got spiritual and moral decline. And they're kind of going opposite each other, right? Can you picture that? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're opposing. So usually in fairy tales, those two go hand in hand. So material advantage is akin to moral advantage. As you go along, you, you know, you win the princess and you become the king. Yeah. So what this story is doing, I thought, is it's ripping that intertwined narrative function apart and playing with it. And that's often what these stories do, I thought. You have a kind of basic set of rules and functions, the standard fairy tale story, and each story kind of plays with it in a different way. So I thought what this one's doing is it's identified that sort of, that line of uh, that trajectory of, as you achieve something, you get richer, and it's, it's ripping it apart. And I really like how it sort of it ends so abruptly. It just snaps back. And the two lines on the graph just like recalibrate with each other. There's, yeah. there's no like, and they learned their lesson and they lived happily ever after. It just no. ends. No, and I do like that. That is a great way to end it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like if I can do my sort of grim fable thing of, of summing it up pithily. Yeah, as Adam does in our patron-only podcast. <laughs> Good plug. Little good plug, little plug. Um, greed is bad. Greed is bad. Greed is bad. <laughs> I mean, it would have been a much shorter story. <laughs> I could have saved them a lot of time. <laughs> greed is bad. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously this story is about greed, right? And unchecked ambition. It, yeah. It's literally just saying, yeah. In the most epic way possible, greed is bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's got a very clear moral, which actually, another thing is in other fairy tales, there's not necessarily a it's clear no, moral. No. This is very clearly quite moralistic and saying, yeah. greed is bad. Yeah. On that side of things, on that note, um, I thought you can take that a bit further. So, I thought if you place this story historically, mm. when this was collected when it was you know written published by the grims it made me think that perhaps we can see the specter of napoleon lurking between the lines in this story okay interesting so when this was first published this is entirely in my head but this is my (laughs) my idea it might be nonsense matt's theory (laughs) so when this was first published it was in the context of napoleon casting a very deep shadow over europe he'd risen from general to first consul and then he had himself declared emperor in december 1804 as we saw in our biography episode um jacob grimm happened to be in paris that month as well he was there when napoleon was crowned emperor yeah and then napoleon invaded everywhere (laughs) literally everywhere yeah including the grimm's region where the grimm's live their home so this terrifying concentration of power and ambition was incredibly real to them. So yeah. as, as well as greed, this story could be seen maybe as sort of critical of despotism. So this is published at a time when Napoleon has ha- been declared emperor and his sort of ambition and greed knows no bounds and has invaded, you know, what is now modern day Germany. Yeah. And so they've sort of extrapolated that a bit to go beyond emperor to pope and then, well... Not God, but actually back to Fisherman's Wife. Well, it's just sort of the, the sort of resonance of this story with yeah. at the time, maybe. Yeah. And again, we saw in the biography episode how the Brothers Grimm 
had a liberal streak to them and they championed democratic ideals. But then at the same time, I thought they were also at heart conservatives, the Grimms, and they were not against the monarchy by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So I thought on the, on the one hand, while this is a moral story about checking your ambition and your greed, there's also a real sense of like belonging in your place. There's like a natural status quo and this like extreme social mobility that the fisherman's wife goes on is yeah. is unnatural. Like in the story, like nature starts breaking down. So I thought yeah. on the one hand, it's perhaps critical of like despotism, but on the other hand, there is a sense of know your place. Yeah. Which I think encapsulates the sort of tension within the Grimm's own political philosophy. I don't know if I've overthought this, but uh, no, that occurred to me. Yeah. No, that is interesting. Yeah, it's like it's unnatural, isn't it? She's breaking nature. She's destroying the sea. The sea's turning purple and green and orange and frothing away. Black and thick and boiling <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. I yeah. like that. I, I, yeah. I can see that, definitely. Uh, just a few yeah. interpretations for you. I'd, I'd say that the, the, the tempestuous sea, I'd say that's my favourite part of the story. The whole, yeah. like, apocalyptic stroll back to the beach where every time yeah. it's just getting worse and worse. Yeah, and it's weird to think that that's sort of happening in, in the background while they're back at the palace, whatever. You just know the sea is, like, boiling up, bubbling away, <laughs> getting thick and black, and the clouds are gathering. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, like, it's really foreboding. yeah. It's got a real kind of literary feel to it. It's very artistic, the way it's written, in ways that we don't normally see. You get so much more detail. And we get that kind of pathetic fallacy where, you know, the weather is like reflecting the what's happening to the people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally. I think mm. the only other story I can think of that really had that sort of level of detail was the Irish Christmas tale we read at Christmas. Like... That level of just insane detail. Yeah, yeah. I'd also say the the little fir tree or whatever it's called, the Hans Christian Andersen story you read yeah. the Christmas before. Yeah. But what we're saying there is it feels different. It feels not like a Brothers Grimm story, not, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is a reason it feels a little different. Hold up. The source for The Fisherman and His Wife was the painter Philip Otto Runge. Now, we've met Runge before. Yeah, that rings a bell. He supplied one other story to the collection, the juniper tree. Of course, he's, it's a good calibre. It's in good company. Another quite... A top-tier story. Yeah, but one that was quite descriptive as well. Quite yeah, like yeah, artistic, yeah. artistical. Yeah. I believe in that episode I called him Runge, and uh, I got... Pulled up by one of our German listeners. It's Runge, oh. I believe. Runge. So I'm going to okay. try my best to pronounce that right now. <laughs> um, so Runge was actually, he was a highly renowned and important romantic German painter. So he's quite well known in the artistic world already. But he was into his sort of folklore and because it's all part of romanticism. And mm-hmm. in 1806, he 
sent this story to Akim von Arnim and Clemens Brentano, two guys who were compiling a book of German folk songs called The Boy's Wonderhorn. We discussed uh-huh. this in our biography episode. We certainly did. So Arnim and Brentano were friends of the Grimm's. They inspired them to create their Grimm's fairy tale book. So from them, the Grimm's got hold of this story from Runge, and then they put it in uh, Kindle and Housemark in the Grimm's fairy tales. Now, the Grimm's, as we know, Adam wrote notes about all their stories uh, and their annotations for this go as follows. This story has been excellently well taken down by Runge of Hamburg in the Pomeranian dialect. That's uh, like northeast Germany on the Baltic coast bordering Poland. And it was kindly communicated to us by Arnim as early as the year 1809. I don't know, I'm talking like the fish, the flounder again. Yeah, Yeah, he's a smart fish. He's a smart fish. He knows his stuff. It is often told in Hesse, but imperfectly and with variations. So in their their home region, they found other Mm -hmm. versions of this, but they're imperfect, apparently. Um, (laughs) And then in their notes, they recount a few of these folk variations they found, which are pretty similar. And also other similar stories they found in literature back in time, including a Welsh saga. We we don't have time, though, Adam, I'm afraid. come on. You can't dangle a Welsh saga in front of me. (laughs) And finally, the Grimm's conclude in their notes... The feature of the wife inciting her husband to seek high dignities is ancient in itself, from Eve and the Etruscan Tanaquil down to Lady Macbeth. Lady, Lady Macbeth. Macbeth, you say? Shakespeare's back, Adam. Oh, it's been so long. See, the, the Shakespeare train stopped a long time ago, but I think I hear it whirring back into life. Well, this time it was the Grimm's. That's in their notes. I'm not shoehorning wow. this in. You're not. No, no, no. They brought it no up themselves. No shoehorn required. <laughs> so yeah, they they've identified here a trope: the pushy, avaricious wife. Yeah, Lady Macbeth. Indeed, and there are loads of other good examples that they didn't mention. You've got Jezebel in the Bible is another good example. Yeah. Yep. There are examples in a few Nordic sagas. Um, where uh, wives and mothers encourage, you know, their men to act badly in order to get ahead. Yeah, you get it in Game of Thrones with Stannis Baratheon's oh, yeah. wife. Yeah, okay, Game of Thrones. Yeah, but yeah. this trope is most famously encapsulated in the character Lady Macbeth. So in the Shakespeare play, Macbeth hears a prophecy from the three witches that he'll be king of Scotland. Lady Macbeth is well into this, and uh, she says, "I like that idea." King Duncan comes to stay at their castle. And egged on by his wife, Macbeth stabs him in the night. And then he's tormented by it. And Lady Macbeth's like, it's fine, it's fine, it's for the best. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of, that's Lady Macbeth's main role. Really boiled down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Macbeth, it's come up in the podcast before, hasn't it? When we talked about self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hey, Shakespeare, he knew what he was talking about. He certainly did. I mean, it comes up a lot. He's, you know, Shakespeare was really into folklore and fairy tales. And I think it might have been in The Elves and the Shoemaker. I brought up like the amount of times he references fairy tales or elves or stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Because it was, they were popular stories at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is very much a trope. And, you know, credit where it's due. The Brothers Grimm's picked up on this sexist trope in their notes that I didn't even immediately notice 200 years later. So well done, lads. 
Yeah, well done. We've been quite harsh on them recently, so, you know. No, 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 no. Props. You got this one. Massive props. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massive props. (laughs) Well, I I think there there was one other... There was one thing we, we set aside, we buried in a secret place earlier. Yes, absolutely. Apart from dangling a Welsh saga in front of me, you also very tantalisingly cool, brushed aside a um, a question I had about a, a female pope. I did indeed. I wonder why. The wife becomes pope. The highest office in this story. But as you and I know, women can't be popes. Right? Surely not. Or can they? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when I read this story, like I, it occurred to me, as you were saying, like, okay, you can have queens. Pro- you know, there have been empress- empresses in history. Yeah. But a female pope? I had this vague recollection about a woman disguised as a man becoming pope. And this is why you have that thing of popes being checked to make sure they're men. Have you heard of this before? No, I haven't heard Have of this. Have you never this heard is horrendous. of horrendous. Right, so I had this idea that popes are, like, checked. They're felt to make sure they're men because... Oh, they're felt. There's no visual um, confirmation. It's purely tactile. Is that what we're suggesting here? That's what I... That that's, can be faked, surely. Prosthetics. That's, that's what... Well, I said, yeah, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> So I, I had a lot of questions too, Adam, yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, we've all got questions on this. So many questions. With all this in mind, I sent a, uh, a raven, a pigeon from oh, the yeah. castle to our podcast friends, Pontifacts. Hey! Part of the Rexy Pod family, uh, yeah. Pontifacts are reviewing all of the popes. So if anybody knows about popes, it's them. They are... The preeminent podcast experts on popery. Yeah, yeah. Paper yeah. So I, I got in touch and I said, I've got this idea that there was a female pope and who was disguised as a man and that's why uh, popes are checked. And very kindly, Brie, one of the hosts, got back to me and c- she confirmed that this is a thing. It's the legend of Pope Joan. Are you ready to learn a little bit about Joan and the legend of the Popess? Yes, I am. Awesome. Pope Joan the legend. Amazing. So so this is all this is all from Brie. This is all information from Brie. The story goes that Joan was born in Mainz, Germany, to English missionary parents. Ooh. Germany, England, it's just perfect for us. It Love is. it. And she was educated alongside monks and missionaries. She was a very bright student and excelled in her studies, and she fell in love with a monk. And when this monk lover left Mainz for Athens for further study, Joan disguised herself as a monk, taking the name Johannes Anglicus, John the English, so that she could accompany him. Oh, so he was in on this. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
so she became quite well known as a scholar, uh, which led to an opportunity to come to Rome to lecture. Oh, wow. And she made such an impression upon the church that she was brought in to work for the Pope. All the while, she's hiding the fact that she's a woman here. Yeah, she's John. And like, everyone's like, oh, what's this? I'm like, Mark, he's, he's really close with his friend John, isn't he? Like, John the English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're always together. Really, they can't stay apart. <laughs> I could take that joke further. I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep it family friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. All above board. So she's working for the Pope. Okay, she's she's close. She's very close to the Pope. <laughs> then, when Pope Leo the Fourth died in 855 AD, Joan was then elected to be the next Pope. Oh, this Johnny English. Johnny, Johnny English. Johnny, Johnny English. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, so, <laughs> so she's played by Rowan Atkinson. Yeah, this is Johnny English 3. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny the English Pope. Um, so she's Pope, but during that time, Joan could not contain her female lust, and she took another lover... And she became pregnant, which she attempted to conceal within the loose and flowing papal robes. But then in 857, while giving holy procession from St. Peter's to the Lateran Palace, she went into labour and gave birth to a baby in the streets or in some accounts while on horseback. While so, on horseback? Yeah. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, no, just no. Yeah, the Pope gave birth on while riding a horse. <laughs> Imagine that. You're seeing the Pope... On a horse giving birth, your mind would explode. So the secret's out. Everyone yeah. knows what's going on. The people of Rome were enraged by this, uh, mm-hmm. and both Joan and her baby were killed by the mob. Oh, no. She was, like, dragged through the streets by oh, a horse, tied to a horse. Yeah. Um, in other accounts, she escapes to exile and lives out her life in penance, and her child grows up to be a bishop, but... Okay, that's very different to being killed and dragged by a horse. But the, well, the main sort of accepted version of the events is dragged by a horse and killed, I believe. Yeah. And from that point on, due to the shame and degradation of the papacy, all future popes had to have their maleness verified before they could be consecrated. Right. So that's, that's the idea. That's the story of Pope Joan. Okay. So there are several surviving accounts of Pope Joan, the earliest of which appeared in the mid-13th century, in 1250, in the Chronica Universalis Mentensis. So, is this true then? It seems mm. to be sort of verified in a, in a lot of, um, albeit conflicting, accounts about what happened. Yeah. Well, Bree writes, The truth? There was no Pope Joan. Ah, oh, knew it. The time period in which she is claimed to have existed is well documented, particularly the death of Pope Leo IV and the succession of Pope Benedict III. No enemies of the papacy at the time make any mention of a female pope, and believe me, in this time period, they certainly would have. No sources about Pope Joan exist until at least 400 years after her alleged papacy. I was going to say several hundred years, yeah. Yeah. That's a shame. I know, it would have been so cool. (laughs) Yeah. But... At the time that the accounts were written, and for centuries after the fact, people did believe she had existed. And that has had an impact on the papacy, and was used emphatically and liberally by opponents of the papacy to attack and criticise them. I would argue that people still believe that today, yeah. Brie, because 
I I had that idea in my head that even there was, now. Yeah. yeah. Well, and if it's had the effect that they, it's not, you know, it is true that they are verified. Well. Then it's had an effect. Yeah. Brie continues. The special seat. This gets a little complicated. The special seat made for verifying the sex of an elected pope does exist. It's called the Throne of Tears. The th- oh, okay. Or the Sedia Stercoraria, I believe, in Italian. And it's a special seat. I'm going to stay out of this special seat. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be careful when you come round my castle, Adam. Which seat you pick? <laughs> Would you like to sit in the special seat? Um, why is it got a hole in it? So it's, it's known as the Throne of Tears. <laughs> Nothing to worry about, I can assure you. Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, so the throne of tears is made from porphyry and it has a hole in the center. Yeah. And according to accounts, the newly elected Pope would sit on the chair and a cleric would have to reach in, verify and declare testiculus habet et bene pendentes or testicles he has and they hang nicely. <laughs> what if they don't hang nicely? I think that's one of my favorite <laughs> quotes of all time yeah i mean i love the fact that you reeled off a load of latin to me and the only word i picked out was testicles testicles he has (laughs) and they hang nicely (laughs) absolutely ludicrous and that's true well really happens accounts of its use date from 1290 Geoffrey corlon a benedictine chronicler and there are several other mentions including one in 1404 but this was likely not the original purpose for the chair, as its providence is actually ancient Roman. So there is a chair with a hole in it, but it's an ancient <laughs> Roman chair. It was likely originally a Roman toilet or birthing chair. I see. That was kept in the Vatican for the value of its antiquity. But when the legend of Pope Jonah rose, it was given a second life. Yeah, it's like they had a look at the chair and they was like scratching the chair. It's like, you think of what I'm thinking? Oh, yeah, we can use this. <laughs> They hang nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Brie concludes, there is so much more to say on all of this and more, and we're going to be dedicating at least three episodes of Pontifax to Pope Joan over the course of this summer. So if your listeners want to hear more, we'll have them covered. So if if you want more of that, they are literally just getting ready to uh, explore Pope Joan. It could be more perfect. So Pontifax, if you want to... uh to hear about that absolutely thank you so much for that uh guys that is absolutely amazing and yeah quite serendipitous that i think she'd already had quite a lot of the research done yeah <laughs> so that's great just it worked out perfectly. yeah thank you so much um yeah. kind of fascinating shame it's not real but yeah amazing so long story short no female pope but the legend of pope joan is a big part of papal law and there is a chair with a hole in it and several accounts of it being used to check the Pope. Wow. But it's most certainly not used anymore if it ever was. Okay, so... That's Pope, my impression. Pope yeah. Francis <laughs> didn't get his testicles verified. No, right? we do not know if they hang nicely. They might not hang nicely, but they probably do. It's just getting very blue, this episode. Huh? <laughs> it really is, isn't it? And I was thinking, I was just going to say, like, we said earlier in the episode that the, the fisherman and his wife is like a sort of reverse King Thrushbeard. Yeah. And the legend of Pope Joan, I would say, is sort of like a reverse Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) (laughs) And thus all your credibility (laughs) was shattered. Am I wrong, though? Don't boo me if I'm wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could just see you like in a sort of folklorist lecture at university. You're like, well, that's almost like a reverse thrush beard. And they're like, hey, interesting point from who's that guy? He's good. And then you're like, well, that's like a reverse Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> they're like, ah. Oh. It was going so well. Yeah. I mean, I'm right, but... You're totally right. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's so much more. There's so much more to talk about this story. Mm-hmm. But I think we're pretty much going to have to leave it there. Um, it's been very influential is one thing that I did want to say, actually. That I forgot to say earlier. So uh, Alexander Pushkin, the uh, famous Russian writer, he yeah. wrote a, a well-known poem called The Fisherman and His Wife, which is from this story that, I, that we just read. Right. And in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, her most famous novel, one of the characters reads The Fisherman and His Wife in the story. Oh, cool. And also, German novelist Gunter Grass wrote a version of the tale called The Flounder, to name a few of wow. the stories in which this lives Derivative on. works or, yeah, wow. Indeed. And I think that brings us nicely to scoring this epic story. Yeah, it's time for the score. Hmm. Hmm. School time. Hmm. Did you enjoy it? I felt like you enjoyed that story. I really enjoyed that story. So, okay, we say it a lot to the point where it's becoming a catchphrase. I don't want it to become a catchphrase, but there is no denying the truth in this. I love a mad one. I love a mad one. (laughs) And this was mad in a kind of exciting new way because if loads of different stories are equally mad but in the same way mm-hmm. that the, so the more stories we read sort of the impact lessons and lessons but this was so mad in a new way that mm. it it sort of packed quite the punch the two mile high throne the the thickening bubbling sea <laughs> the the naked sort of greed and ambition of the wife like this this is a great story well, I'm glad to hear that because I think the one aspect I was worried about that might detract is the sort of long passages of describing the furniture in the palace. No, I loved all that. <laughs> okay, I'm glad because I wasn't sure that could have gone either way, I, I felt at the time. No, that was great. They had carpet. They had Th- carpet. They had carpet, Adam. <laughs> they had carpet. And I, I thought we would sort of get to learn more about the flounder and maybe see it turn <laughs> back into a, a prince. But we didn't. And, but, but in a way, it's kind of great because then it's this mysterious yeah. wish-granting flounder that, that reaches the end of its tether and, like, you're back in the pigsty with you. The end. Yeah. That's great. And I'd say we've seen that guy before in The Gold Children. I was going to say there was right. a fish that was thrown back. Yeah. I, and I totally forgot to mention it after that. I totally so this is, I feel like this is a recurring character. Yeah. And I feel like this time we've just been given a little bit more detail. Oh, he's an enchanted prince. Oh, interesting. Maybe in future, because we don't read ahead here, if anyone's new. We don't know, like, we only know the stories we've chosen to read. So maybe we're going to sort of slowly unravel the story of this fish oh, the, f- the magic fish oh, the magic yeah. prince flounder as you call them yeah <laughs> magic <laughs> prince fish um 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to... What am I going to score this? I'm going to score this story. An eight. Eight, nice. Big high score. Yeah, it's a decent high score, I think. Are you thinking it, some along the similar lines? I am, yeah, I am. Um, so I I try not to come to this with a score in mind because it, it always yeah. changes by from the research to this point. Um, yeah. So I really didn't have a score in mind before. I think this one, I, I felt it had the potential to be a mega high one, like a nine possibly for you. But I think eight, eight sounds about right. Um, uh, yeah, I, you've said it all, really. I, I loved it. It was brilliant. And I, it's it's utterly gripping as well. And it's so long. Yeah. It's, it's one of yeah, the longest yeah, yeah. ones we've had. But you're gripped from start to finish. Yeah. And the ending is so sort of... The way it snaps back is brilliant. Yeah. It's just, brilliant. And, and the way it grips you, because you know something's building, because you sort of cotton on that, okay, the sea's changing each time. Yeah, yeah. And... Because it doesn't follow the usual rule of three, like it just keeps mm-hmm. going. Yeah, You're yeah, like, that's oh, so okay. So now I don't know where the end of this. Like, how is this going to end? So it is gripping. It's like absolutely that final payoff just hits hard. So I, I'm tempted by like a nine. I think. Oh wow! But that that is very high. And I think perhaps what holds me back is because it's it does feel different in a way. It's not like a normal fairy tale. So it almost feels cheating. <laughs> because it's not really like a normal fairy tale and uh we're normally getting fairy tales so it's true but you can't be too precious can you if you feel it was a nine i think you've got to go with your heart on this one i'm gonna go nine wow yeah shouldn't have done that oh <laughs> joking, joking. no no that, i think that's great and i was toying between a sort of eight and an 8.5 and i sort of opted for the lower end so yeah it could have easily been an 8.5 for me so that's a 17 in total. Yeah, it's 17. A very strong score. <sighs> Whopping score right there. I had no idea what I was in for when I picked <laughs> the fisherman and his wife, and I'm very glad I did. A wonderful, another wonderful story around the fire. Oh, yeah. At Castle Grimm. It's been a joy. Hello, it's Matt and Adam from the future. Hello. Not that far in the future, but in the near future. Actually, when we recorded this episode, we thought that the next episode was going to be Clever Hands. Yes, and we got very excited about it. But it isn't going to be Clever Hands. The plans changed because we've got a super secret surprise episode for you. Yes, we do. We have done an interview with Professor Jack Zipes, one of the foremost Brothers Grimm experts on the planet. (laughs) On the planet. uh, On the planet, yo. And we're planning to release that next. We're kind of slotting it in between The Fisherman and His Wife and Clever Hands. So that'll be out in two weeks. And then two weeks after that, we'll be back to regular storytelling where you'll get your hands fixed. Yes. So Clever Hands is coming. That's exciting. But before that, you're going to hear this interview. We're excited to share it with you. So uh, Yeah, it's very exciting. It is very nerdy and in-depth and... uh, proper sort of academic stuff we talk about a very particular type of folktale known as the sorcerer's apprentice which for the brothers Grimm is their story the thief and his master so in the next episode you're going to hear professor jack zibes talking about the sorcerer's apprentice if that's not a hook to draw you in i don't know what is (laughs) (laughs) well 
It's been nice stepping back into the past. It, it has been. We're going to leave you now and you're going to go back to the past to hear the outro music. So uh, it's been fun. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com grimreading to find out how and also see the range of benefits available as a thank you from us. You can, of course, email us at grimreadingpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at GrimReadingPod and we're also on Instagram and Facebook at GrimReading. You can find us on Podbean, podbean.com slash GrimReading and we also have a website, grimreading.wordpress.com Keep it grim. <laughs>